And if you'd open your Bible to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read one verse this morning, and uh, we will be, um, we'll be spending our time there. And uh, if you know me, you know we don't traditionally take breaks from the text or from a, uh, a particular passage on, uh, on Mother's Day or Father's Day, and so sometimes the text gets a little interesting on these days, and you think, wow, what is that going to have to do with today? Uh, there will be a connection. It's going to be great. Um, so uh, we're, in, we're in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read, and then we will pray, and then we'll, we'll spend some time in God's Word. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 says, Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can be here today. Uh, We thank you on this day set aside by our country that we can honor motherhood. We thank you for the nobility of this office which is assigned by you when you decide to create someone. We thank you for those uh, who have nurtured us. Within the midst of the human experience, we can reflect on our parentage and we can say that there were some good things and there were some bad things. For some, the memories of childhood are more painful than they are helpful. And so this is a day that that stirs up difficult emotion. And we pray, Father, for your grace and encouragement in the midst of that. We know that the Bible says that for those who are called according to your purpose, you cause all things to work for good. And so we pray that, that those who have difficult memories would be encouraged by the fact that perhaps their life experience or their parenting, their seeking out of another role model was motivated and they have the blessings that they have from those experiences because of your sovereignty. Lord, there are also those who've experienced difficulty and unable to be parents for one reason or another. We pray that they would, in the midst of of, of that experience, find your encouragement as well, and that they would not think that they are less than. Lord, into each of our life, you introduce those who nourish and care and who selflessly, tirelessly work for our good. We thank you for that. We thank you for the moms that you gave us. We thank you for the moms who are in our life. Lord, I thank you uh, for the mom in our church who, uh, as we begin our worship service, we hear the, the baby crying to be taken care of. And we know that in the Bible, over and over, when you were going to do a great work, when you were going to begin something new, a mom gave birth to a baby. 
whether that was Jesus or Moses or Joseph. Something begins when new life enters into the world. And so we thank you for the hope of change and of a fresh start and of nourishment and care, that symbol that you created. Father, we pray also on a day like today that that the office and dignity of motherhood would return to high esteem in our culture. In a culture where children are dismissed, where motherhood is dismissed as uh, an accessory to life, something that you do once your career has been established, uh, a negotiable. And children can be treated as something to be gotten rid of or a distraction. We just we pray that you would break the heart of our culture and that we would once again hold children, motherhood, family, marriage in high esteem for your glory. Father, as we turn to the text, we pray that you would teach us those lessons that our moms and dads have been trying to teach us because the the idea of conserving and not being naive and not not just uh, opening the gates of our heart and not being taken advantage of and not um, being used and not Uh, being a fool, all of these things are things that our parents sought to teach us. We've either learned those lessons through hearing and obeying or adapting, or we've learned them through pain. Perhaps we haven't learned them at all. So Father, today I pray that you would help us learn discernment as Jesus teaches We pray that you would help us to to deploy this gift of discernment, this skill in our lives that we might be of greater service to you, that we might live for your glory, that, that we would be those, yes, who are loving and those who refrain from judgment, but also those who are of great help to others. Because that's the life that Jesus modeled. One of love and care, but also one of discernment and correction. So we pray that you would teach us now, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Mother's Day is a great time to reflect on the greatness and blessing of mom. And I think of the the moms in my own personal timeline and history and, and some of the great advice that they dispense. Uh, now, when you look back at my, my father's mom, uh, unfortunately, she was larger than my mother's mom, and so she got the name Big Grandma, and then there was my mom's mom, who was Little Grandma. Uh, we, we, were not, we were not sensitive enough. We had no uh, training at that time to tell us that this might have been inappropriate. It worked for us, and it stuck. Um, Big Grandma dispensed advice that was, I think, well-intentioned. Finish what's given to you when you eat, right? You know, brush your teeth. But she did it in a fashion that was somewhat um, 
fable, I guess is a way of saying. She would say things like, eat the crust of your sandwich. It will put hair on your chest. And as a young man, I'm thinking, no, this is not, this is not good. It's also not scientifically true. She also told me this did haunt me. Um, there is no Jeremiah or Psalms verse here to hold on to in a time of difficulty. This is something that induced anxiety in me. She said, Keith, if you do not brush your teeth, you will grow tusks like an elephant. And I thought, man, like I would feel, you know, at different times, you know, is it, is it happening? You know, like I, I missed a day here, you know, I failed to brush my teeth before I left for school. Now she's just trying to help me out, you know, like brush your teeth, dude. But, but she, she scarred me in some ways. Uh, when one of us would fall, my brother or I, this is not good advice, and it's not connected to anything I'm saying. I just feel like I got to say it. She, when we would fall down, she would say, hey, that felt good, didn't it? And we'd be like, no, it felt terrible. Get up. You'll be fine. Um, mom dispenses all kinds of advice, right? Uh, and there are those things that your mom said to you, those proverbs that you thought, like, oh, you know, like, why do you say that? And then, and then if you, you, you have your own kids, and if you've got new babies, you're like, I will never do that. You will do it. And you will say, oh, my goodness, I am my mother. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. You know that, right? Like, I'm like, but mom, it's true what I'm saying. And now I say it to my kids, and I oppress them. And in the same, take away their rights to, to, to tell what is on their heart. Uh, how about this hurts me more than it hurts you? Yeah, I'll never say that. And now I do. One day you'll thank me. I'll never thank you for this, right? And then the classic, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it, Right? Uh, we, we have a tendency, perhaps, to dismiss good advice that will one day be relevant to us that we're going to latch onto and try to pass on to our own kids because we, we, we grab it quickly and we inspect it, we unpack it, we look at it, we say, this is irrelevant, we throw it away, right? You know, it's, it's like uh, if we can't put it to immediate use and it doesn't make immediate sense, then it is to be dispensed of. We get, we get rid of it. Um, I believe that Jesus' statement about casting our pearls before swine, if we don't take it as a, as a whole and, and dig in and consider it, we might just use it in a, in, a, in a proverbial way where we'll say something like, well, the Bible says don't cast your pearls before swine. So uh, what I want to do is, is to decode it, draw a conclusion, and then apply it, okay? And, and say, what does this have to do with, with us today? Is it of use? Because I believe every single statement in chapter 7 is something that is, on some level, counterintuitive, right? We think we know what it means because it's, it's broken into our culture and is, is proverbial, but when we unpack it, we see what Jesus is doing is saying, is saying, come this way, turn my way, edge toward me, follow my path, and it will advance my kingdom in your life and in this world. And there is something, I think, that is so powerful here, if, if we have ears to hear it. Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is sacred, 
Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. So let's decode. What does this, what does this mean? Uh, now, years ago, uh, prior to owning my own little 15-pound cockapoo, I would have uh, agreed completely with the, the interpretation of what dogs are according to the Bible, but I must confess, uh, even though he barks a lot and does not seem to know uh, when he should be inside and when he needs to go outside, you know, he's constantly defending our house against rabbits and birds in the backyard, you know, stop barking, right? Uh, even though he is... He brings that baggage. He has won my heart, and I miss him. And there are times where I'm like, where is my dog, right? You know, and I look for him, and I'm like, you know, where's my dog? And, he, and he's, you know, curled up on the couch sitting next to me, and I think, like, you are man's best friend. Like, I can say to you, stop barking already, and you will be like, I'm sorry, and sit down, and, like, you want to hang out with me still, you know. Um, I like that. But that is not the way the Bible thinks about dogs. No. So, so put your cultural love for your pooch on the shelf for a moment um, and understand that people did not keep dogs in general as pets in Bible times. I know that you love your dog, but think this is before shots. There is no advantics, right? There is no... So, so dogs... Fleas, right? Like, they don't have groomers, right? You know, none of that. Dogs are a problem for the Jew. Uh, they are wild, despised, unclean animals. Listen to, listen to the, the rating of a dog on the, the social totem pole here, right? Ecclesiastes 9, 4. He who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, Right? Uh, uh, the, the least of the animals, like a dog that is the worst, that is still alive, is better than the king or chief of all animals, a lion. Um, if, if, if the lion's dead and the dog's alive, you might as well use, you could substitute that today. If you were writing it today, it would be like better as a living cockroach uh, than a dead lion. Dogs are also kind of gross. Even today, as domesticated animals, they do stuff, and you're like, what is wrong with you? Proverbs 26.11, like a dog that returns to its vomit. If your dog throws up, you better clean it up, right? Because he's coming back. <laughs> you know? Get away. What is wrong with you? You know? It's not like he's going to get, you know, a paper towel to clean it up, you know? He doesn't have opposable thumbs. you got to do it for him. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Dogs had use in that culture, but they were not companions, right? Uh, Job, speaking about, uh, about other, other people, about worthless men, says, Now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't let those guys hang out with the dogs that keep, protect my sheep. That's, that's a pretty low social status within the household. So that's dogs. Second, pigs. Pigs are wild and voracious and unclean animals. They are Gentile food. You, you recall um, in 
uh, in, in the scriptures perhaps that, that Jesus sent uh, uh, the evil spirits into pigs who then jumped off of the cliff and, and bobbed and floated in the water after they had died. He, he cast the demons out there. This was in a Gentile country. The, the disciples who were with Jesus would have thought of this as a fitting fate for those pigs. They wouldn't have been like, oh, the poor pigs, right? There's no PETA mentality here in, 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 in the disciples. You know, they were like, that's what you should do with pigs. Toss them off the cliff, right? Think about the, the low point in the parable of the prodigal son, the Jesus storybook Bible, which you can get animated it is incredible so well done has the uh the, the main character the prodigal son at his lowest point doing doing this it's, it says that he he was going to reach out and eat the piggy food and the illustration is the guy like this and he's like leaning over the cartoon it goes really slow and then he thinks what am i doing the lowest point of this guy's life is that his sin has led him to a place where he's caring for pigs and he wants to eat what they eat. Like, that's rock bottom in Jewish culture. So, dogs, pigs, bad, right? So, do not give to dogs what is holy, what is offered and used within the temple or the tabernacle is of, it, it becomes sanctified, it becomes uh, set apart, and it is not to be used for lesser purposes, right? Look at what Haggai uh, chapter 2 verse 12 says, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, right, you might be like, carrying meat in your pocket? Like, they, they did wrap food back then, right? So they would wrap it somehow, put it in a container, and then you'd kind of like put it in your, in your pocket in, on top of your belt. You'd kind of hold it here because they didn't have internal pockets or zippers or, you know, little totes like we have today that you carry your food around in. A little cooler bag? No. They just kind of stuck it right here and carried it home from the market. If you put holy meat in the fold of your garment and you touch uh, with your fold bread or stew or wine or any other kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. The idea is, is that holy meat right, uh, is to be set aside. It's to be used for something, but it doesn't have magical properties. It's to be it's to be to be separated and protected. What right has my beloved in his house? This is Jeremiah eleven fifteen. When she has done many vile deeds, can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can, can, you, can you offer holy food on the altar and turn aside God's wrath? So, so what, what Jeremiah is saying is judgment is coming here and not even your rituals and your most holy things can stop it. Holy food was important. You shall be consecrated to me, God says in Exodus 22 in the law. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. Right? They have a word for this. I can't remember it out in Pennsylvania. It's when you, when you see a deer with, with all of its, its, its rack on it you know, out on the road, and you uh, stop and take that animal and have it turned into sausage, you know, or, or, or get its head mounted. There's a term for what they, the Pennsylvanians call a person like that who doesn't hunt it, right? You know, you're not supposed to eat that stuff. It's roadkill. How long has it been sitting there? No idea. You don't, you don't do that. That's gross. 
It was gross back then, too. You throw that to dogs, unholy food. You don't take what's been sacrificed and set apart from the Lord and hand it to the dogs because it is a, it is a dragging down of its value and its worth. And think about it. What would happen to the tabernacle or the temple if the priests fed dogs the holy food? You know what happens when you feed a dog from the table. He comes back. He despises what's in his bowl, right? And you have to say, get down, Frodo. Get down, Frodo. Get down, Frodo. Right? Hank arrives, and he's like eating in his high chair, you know, like putting food on his head and stuff, and all the food is like falling through, and the dog just stands there, like, like you know, he's in front of a slot machine, you know, and like a, a coin comes out, and you're like, oh, you grab it, you know, he's like waiting for Cheerios and bits of chicken and everything, he's just sitting there, and they're like falling on the little ledge where the kid's feet go, and he's eating. Now the high chair's gone, and now he sits next to Hank, and if, you know, the kid turns away from his sandwich for even a second, it's like, oh, dog's head comes up, takes the food, runs under the dining room table, never ends. I love him, though. I do. I do love him. Holy food, it's to be protected, right? Protected and not dragged down. Fourth element here, then, is, is pearls. Pearls are of great value and of great price in Jewish culture. Uh, and they're rare. They're, they're formed naturally, and so they need to be harvested, right? Jews also, uh, historically, they looked at the sea as judgment, and so being merchants and sailing on seas is not something that came natural to them. They were fishermen, yes, but they preferred to buy things from merchants, not sail from country to country. That's just in general. And so uh, pearls were exotic and rare. Think about the beauty of pearls, right? The image that comes to my mind is that, that kind of classic pearl look, right? I'm thinking Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? So there she is, right? Black dress, bun, gloves, sunglasses. She's got, if you, you, can, you can Google this, right? She's standing there. She's got her croissant, right? And her... And her paper cup, you know, with the brown writing on it, and she's, she's standing there, and she's got this pearl necklace and earrings, and you just, to this day, you look, and you think, like, that is classy. Like, that, that, it's, it's just, yeah. Now, I automatically bump into my fair lady, and I hear her saying, how do you do, right? You know, how do you do? Uh, the, but, but, but pearls, they are, they are precious, they are to be cared for, they are rare and valuable, they are also extremely inedible. That's the point right here, right? Have you, ever, have you ever tried to bite down on something that you're putting in your mouth with a fork and instead you bite on the fork instead, right? You have like a, a, a momentary eating failure. You know, you're like, ah, you just bit down on a metal fork. Pain. Or if even, even worse, you lose a piece of a metal filling while you're eating. Have you ever had that happen and you bite down and you're like, ah, or this is, this is, I think, on the scale of horribleness, right? When you're eating a salad or something and, and there's a grain of sand stuck in there. I have, I have found in the like Walmart pre-washed salad, I've found rocks before, you know, and you bite down on it. It's just like, ah, 
it makes you angry, right? What Jesus is, discuss, is, is talking about here is he's saying, don't take your pearls and mix them into the food that you're prepping for the pigs and throw it out to the pigs because you know what's going to happen? They're going to repeatedly and regularly chomp down on this and it's going to make them mad when they can't eat what you're feeding them. It's going to make them angry. Make me angry if you were like, come over for dinner and like, you were like mixing rocks into my food, you know? Probably just get up and leave or just say like, I'm good. Like, do you have any water that doesn't have any particles in it? Like, I'll, I'm just good with water. Um, so so there's, there's this idea of, of angering the pigs by feeding them what they can't eat. They'll turn on the person who's feeding them and, and, and bite them. When you, when you feed dogs holy things, when you treat the, the holy things with contempt, the dogs will eventually, they will, they, will, they will stop respecting the perimeter and the distance, and they will come to the door of the tabernacle or come into the temple, and if you refuse to feed them, they will turn on you and eat them. That's decoding it. This is what Jesus is, is saying here, is don't treat holy things as unholy with regard to dogs. And don't give things that are inedible or unable to be appreciated to pigs. So what does it mean? The identity of dogs and pigs is incredibly important here if we're going to understand what the meaning is. Now, some Bible interpreters, I've been kind of disappointed with some of my commentaries this week, prepping, getting ready, just not loving everything that's in there, um, because some people say that the pigs are Gentiles and so are the dogs. Um, this was a, a way of, of, of referring to the Gentiles by some Jews, and that the holy things and pearls are the gospel, and so what we're told is to not waste the gospel and I just I think like this does not make sense I don't I don't like it uh, a couple reasons why one uh, now Jesus does call the gospel the pearl of great price but that shows up much later in Matthew okay and here's what my professor he's gone home to be with the Lord Dr. Larkin said is it's it's not fair to to fast forward in the gospel and to grab an image that's in the future and to bring it back to the, to the beginning, but, but you can take things that have happened uh, earlier in the gospel and bring them forward towards the end. Does that make sense? So we can't bring the pearl of great price that happens later back here to the beginning and say, this is what he's talking about. Although later on, we can say, Jesus, remember he said, don't throw pearls, and maybe it's relevant to that passage much later. Um, but, but I just, I don't like the idea here that Gentiles are pigs. It's just not, it's not good. Jesus Second, second thought here, Jesus occasionally limits the gospel in that what's, what's called the messianic secret. He'll say, don't tell anybody I healed you. Don't tell anybody about me. Or he'll say, like, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. He'll do that occasionally. But when he's asked, he never actually withholds anything. Right? If Jesus didn't want people to talk about him and, and healing someone was a risk, right, he just wouldn't have healed them. Instead, he heals them and says, don't tell anybody about me. Why does he do that, by the way, just as an aside? Because, because even though Jesus is healing and he is the good news, there is no gospel yet. He's not gone to the cross. 
What are they going to say? Go find Jesus. He, he's the Messiah. He hasn't even lived out his mission yet. When, once he goes to the cross, he's like, tell everybody about me. Prior to the cross, he's like, don't say anything to anybody because they're going to get the wrong idea. But nobody ever listens to him. Right? They just, they just go and tell. And it always says that, that, that the gospel spreads. Okay, so the point here is, is that Jesus may limit the gospel or attempt to silence someone, but he never holds it. And in certain cases, when Jesus is in a situation where he is, he is playing off this Jew-Gentile division, the main purpose, I believe, is to highlight the prejudice of those who are surrounding the situation. Think about this one situation in Matthew 15, 1. Uh, Jesus is in the area of, of Tyre and Sidon. He's, he's up in the, in the northeast of his country, northwest, sorry. And a Canaanite woman comes from that region, a Canaanite. Remember the Canaanites? Go into the land and kill all the Canaanites, enemies, okay? Behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. His disciples came and said, send her away. She's crying out after us. And Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? The disciples are like, she's annoying. The Jewish crowd surrounding is, is saying, what? she doesn't have any expectation of anything. She's a Canaanite. You know? She, she deserves only judgment. She came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Ooh, man, the truth crowd, right? They are like, they are like, she got served a plate full of truth right there. You know, she got everything that's coming. Why doesn't she go back and find some Canaanite messiah? Then she says, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, right? They get right in there in that high chair, and they just wait for food to fall, and they eat because crumbs are going to fall. And then Jesus, I just imagine, big smile at this point. He answers her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Jesus loved Gentiles. He loved them. They persisted and they got what they asked for. There's never an occasion where he's like, nope, go away. He may be focused in one area and he may be saying, I'm giving this, this truth and this blessing to Israel, but over and over Israel rejects it. They don't, they don't receive what's coming from him as Messiah. Look at Matthew 8.10. When Jesus heard this, when he heard the, the centurion whose, whose servant was ill, the, the, the man comes and says, my servant is ill. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And he's like, don't listen. You're a busy man. you got a lot of things to do. You don't even need to come. I know that you're powerful enough. Just say the word and it'll be done because that's the way I live my life. I'm a commander. I say to soldiers, do this, and they do it. So... I don't want to take too much of your time. You don't need to come to my house. I'd love to have you if you want to have lunch, but you know Jesus is like, good for you. He's healed. This is his response, though. Everybody's listening around. They're probably shocked that he's helping this Gentile. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. How condemning 
must that have felt to those who thought that this guy deserved nothing? Not the people, the people who Jesus came to give the truth to would reject him so greatly that, that it could almost be considered unanimous rejection of their Savior, of their Messiah. And then finally, Jesus is speaking here about judgment and transparency and hypocrisy and relationships. And so a more general application than just sharing the gospel is probably in order. Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, 43 to 47 about loving our enemies. And then in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, he says, do not judge. And there may be a temptation on Christians to see those rules, those guidelines given by Jesus, love our enemies, don't judge. We may then think this means that I need to become an undiscerning fool, that, that I need to be one who just, you know, that I just, I just throw open the doors of my life and I say, hey, you know, take whatever you want. You know, it's all free. I'll tell you all the secrets of my heart. You can have all my resources. And then people just come along and take advantage. You might think that based on those two passages. But here, Jesus says this, lack of judging people harshly and critically, lacking that, Having a willing, generous spirit towards those who we might consider our enemies or adversaries does not mean that we need to be naive and foolish in terms of discernment in our relationships. Keep the sacred things safe, Jesus is saying. Exercise proper discrimination within your relationships or you are liable to get hurt. We all discriminate on some level. And I don't mean racial prejudicial discrimination. I mean, you go into a car dealership and you say, hey, we're looking for a car. And the salesman starts to talk and you're like, ah, I don't really like this. Ah, just, this doesn't feel right to me. I just don't trust this person. Do you allow yourself to get under a, a cloud of condemnation? Like, oh no, this person, clearly I interpret them as my enemy, and I must love them. I must buy a car from them, even if it's not a good deal. No, that's foolish. Think about it. We discriminate all the time. I choose this person as my landscaper. I choose to employ this person to work in my home. I have these people babysit my children. I want this person to invest and protect my money, right? Think about it. We do this. That's what we do. Why? Because God gave us wisdom. We may not judge or condemn anyone, but on the other hand, we must have a sense of judgment in our contacts with other people. We need to, with great care and humility, discriminate between those who have the capacity, <coughs> pardon me, to appreciate what we have to offer. Okay, so let's apply this to the gospel and then more generally. One, we should not prejudge who will receive the gospel message, but neither should we try to force it on those who show no inclination to accept it. Amen. We shouldn't force it on people. We, we move from being polite and offering something that can change their life. At some point, we move with, with certain people 
We can get to the place where they find us irritating and annoying and incivil. And when we judge them for their bad behavior and we do not express our own lack and they see us as a hypocrite, we are then immunizing them against the truth of the gospel. Because what they hear is preaching, 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 and they see very little sympathy and very little action. Okay? We'll talk more about that. I'm not just going to throw that out as an unqualified statement. But let's, let's, let's move back to where I think that this, this passage really lands home. It is all correction and all wisdom. Listen, if you are in your word and you are a person who walks in the spirit and who has wisdom to some degree or another, you have an immense amount of blessing to offer other people. Think about it. The Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. This is true 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and has been true since God created the world. And yet, there are many people who don't seem to know it, and you can offer that to someone and perhaps change the course of their earthly life. You can help them. You can help them be a better employee. You can help them be a better spouse and a better parent. But the correction needs to be offered in a way that is discerning, or they will reject it or ignore it. We should not prejudge who will receive our perspective, but neither should we try to force it on those who show no inclination to accept it or to threaten or to intimidate them with the truth. Proverbs 9.8, I think, encapsulates this idea. Do not reprove a scoffer. Don't Correct, the proverb is saying here, someone who does not respect anyone or honor any authority or he will hate you. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, he will love you. Isn't that amazing? It's in the Bible. If you try, they say, to put lipstick on a pig, what does that do? It wastes your time and it makes the pig angry. That's what they say, right? But if, if you give advice to someone who has a willing ear and an open heart and can understand where you're coming from, then they will see your blessing to them as gold. Now, the Bible speaks of this again, Proverbs 26.3. It says, a whip for the horse. Remember, no pita. Um, a whip for the horse a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. So fools need to be corrected, but the government carries rods, by the way. Um, that's, that's the way that works here. The proverb then goes on and says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Have you ever watched two people argue, and in the beginning you were thinking, like, man, that one person, they are totally wrong. Like, their perspective is just off. They're dumb. But then as the argument goes on and on, you're like, no, nah, I'm pretty sure both of them are. Like, I was, because, because when you answer a fool according to their folly, when you argue with them and argue with them and argue with them and the conversation's not going anywhere and there's no traction, you're 378 comments deep on Facebook, you know, or you've been at the water cooler arguing about this for 25 minutes and everyone in the office is kind of like, you know, it, 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 it accomplishes nothing. Okay, that's Proverbs 26.4. Proverbs 26.5, right next to it, says this. Answer a fool according to his folly. 
lest he be wise in his own eyes. You have a 50% chance of having the right proverb in any situation. This requires wisdom and discernment. We are not to judge and to find fault with others in a hypocritical, condemning, unfair way. That's 7, 1 through 5. But that does not mean that we treat all people the same. Some people are very receptive and some are not. And so let's apply this a little bit. We ought to learn as Christians to limit our time and energy with certain people, but not to limit our love. We owe a debt, the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, to every single, I think it's verse 8, to every single person. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, is what Paul says. Every single human deserves your love, but not every single person is going to appreciate it, use it well, and if you don't build some sense of discernment, they will rob you dry and hurt you. That's true. I was at a conference this, this weekend, and a guy called people like this energy vampires. That's a kind of a cool term. And uh, he has a poster in his office that says, all energy vampires welcome expect to be converted, is what he, he says. Um, and so we need, to, we need to learn to limit our time and energy, not our love. We, we, some of us need to come to grips with the fact that fixing everyone in our world might not be possible. Might not be possible? Is impossible. If you were able to fix everyone in the world, you would be God. And you and I are not. There's a great cartoon on the internet of a, a woman kind of poking her head in a room and she's looking at her husband who's on the computer and she says, why are you still awake? And there's a little clock that says like 3 a.m. And he says, someone on the internet is wrong. <laughs> we need to learn to limit, I love it, uh, learn to limit time and energy but not our love. We need to learn to use wisdom in talking to people. Proverbs 15.1, their Proverbs are full of this. The Bible's full of this kind of information. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Think about that as the pearl, the wisdom, the guidance that you're offering your spouse, your child, your coworker, your, your fellow church member, a leader that you respect, a political leader, someone who you don't know on Facebook. You're offering information. You're offering correction. Think about it. A soft answer turns away the wrath, but a harsh answer stirs it up. Use wisdom and strategy. Listen, my dog does not like to take medication, but if he does not take medication, he is at risk of heartworms, and my house is at risk of having ticks crawling all over the place and having fleas, right? So you know what I do when I administer the medicine? I make mozzarella cheese stick and peanut butter sandwiches. <laughs> you might be like, that is gross, but I cut the cheese stick in half, and then I smear a little bit of peanut butter on there, and I put the pill right in the middle, and then I put the other, listen, 
you, you don't want to eat this for lunch or dinner, but my dog, he loves it. And I just stand there, and I, a little bit of torment, you know, I'm like, eh, eh. And he's like, ah, ah. And then I drop it in, and then he does this. He's like, you know, and he eats it, and it's gone. I hand him the pill. He just, like, he'll, like, lick, and then he drops it on the floor, and he looks at it. You know, and I'm like, get back over here and eat this thing. Use strategy when you talk to people. Use strategy when you talk to people. Use wisdom and come at them in a way. Listen, you are attempting to help them, not to manipulate them. You are attempting to dispense wisdom to them, to help them and to change their life. You want to share the truth about Jesus with them. Come at them in a way that says you will find satisfaction. He will transform and change your life. He will save your marriage. He will provide meaning where you need it instead of you better get straight or you're going to have trouble, right? That's, that's harsher than, 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 you know, many people don't receive that. Instead, come at them with love. We're called to answer folly and foolishness kindly. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We're to answer people's folly kindly. Many times I think that, that some Christians get into these battles with non-Christians and they're like, man, we're going we're gonna to go at it. We're going to fight on the internet. I'm going to win the cause of truth. Not acting like if I win this person, they will be my brother in Christ. Instead, we treat them like an enemy and not as a potential brother or a friend. And when we treat people that way, when we come at them with negativity and not with grace and love, what happens? We widen the rift. Jesus sat down at a well with a woman who was first in that culture, a woman, a Samaritan, and an outcast, and he said, can you give me a drink? And she was like, you're not supposed to ask me for a drink. You're a Jewish man, rabbi, dude. Like, we don't talk. And then he says, listen, if you had known who was talking to you, you'd have asked me for a drink. And that drink would be so good, you'd never be thirsty again. He, he bridges the divide. He steps across the line, and he loves this woman, and he communicates her with her in a creative way that now she's interested. You know what she says? She's like, get away from me, weirdo. No, she's like, give me this water. Tell me. You, you don't have a spoon or a bucket or a jar or anything. Where are you going to get this water from? He's, he's, he's a master. Look at the way that Jesus relates to people. Use the Bible in talking with people. Uh, Back at the, the dawn of the internet and messaging boards, I was, I was there for it. I saw it happen in the, in the 1990s. And you were probably there too. Like in the, you've, just prior to you've got mail, you know? Um, there were these people who I called scripture pasters, right? And what they would do is they would just, anything that was said, they would like paste the Bible verse in there. Like, I have an answer for that. I have an answer for that. I have an answer for that. Instead of, instead of using the Bible in a way that, that, that where, where you say, instead of just throwing it up there to crush discussion, 
offering the Bible to people in a way that says, look, you know, here's a strategy that I use with people. When I disagree with them, soft answer turns away wrath. Doesn't always feel as great, you know, doesn't always work 100% of the time, but generally, you know, soft answer, you know, I understand what you're saying. I understand your objections. I get it. I get why you're upset about this. But look, here's, here's my perspective. Softens the tone. This will help you. Use the Bible that way. Offer it to people. And, and we may feel like it's not effective or that it's not going to work because they don't believe and respect the Bible. But listen, whether or not someone believes and respects the Bible, the Bible is still true. It's, it's it true as gravity, right? Go ahead. You know, somebody at work or your, your spouse or your kid is like, I no longer believe in gravity. That's totally cool, you know? Like, it will probably no longer affect you. Never, never, it, it doesn't work, right? The Bible is always true, and it has its effect. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is real and true. And when the word gets in, stuff starts to happen. So we don't have to plead with them to believe scripture. Instead, we, we offer scripture and we plead for obedience and action. You don't always have to say everything you think about every subject either or give everyone an answer. You don't. When religious leaders tried to trap Jesus in Matthew 21, he refused to answer them. You're not going to answer my questions? I'm not going to answer yours. Sorry, folks. Americans are so obsessed with being polite and not having people say bad things about us or saying, like, I don't like you, that we just, we say tons of stuff. John the Baptist spoke to Herod. Herod took his head. Jesus, when he was in front of Herod, did not answer him. And he barely answered Pilate because he knew their hearts and he judged them as not receptive. There are some people in your life who will not absorb the truth. Okay? Now, we need to be careful with these folks because they're not going to absorb the truth, and so we need to take great care. But Jesus says this when he's dealing with some, some difficult people. He says, let them alone. They are blind guides. Shortest parable in the Bible coming up here. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. We need to exercise prayerful wisdom here, though. Proverbs 9.8 says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And it's not always evident who is wise and who is a scoffer. And so we need wisdom. The stubborn don't absorb the truth. Proverbs 25.12 says, like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Somebody who is willing to listen says, oh, I like that, and they absorb it. But others say, I don't want to hear what you're saying. The simple, the shallow, the, those who have very little discretion don't absorb the truth. Proverbs eleven twenty two: like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. John Broadus, in his commentary on this, says, don't share biblical truths with drunk people. I thought that was incredibly practical. It's not, they're not gonna, it's not gonna make any difference, right? They're gonna forget everything that you say. I just thought that was relevant and interesting. Um, 
But, but try to look beyond and to see the potential in every conversation. Some minds are shut because they are full of bad info. Some hearts are closed to Christianity and to Christians because of some other Christian or group of Christians in their life who have brutalized and hurt them. Their life may be so coated and caked with dried filth that they just need to be washed in the word for a while before they respond. They might be mockers because of pain that's been caused to them or morally blind because they were led by the blind. They may be impervious to the truth, but the spirit can and does break through. But we need to use kindness and wisdom with them. Some conversations aren't for the wider world. There are things that we ought to discuss as Christians together and then discuss with those who are not Christians. I could give you a ton of examples, but I'm just out of time. Use the Bible, use wisdom, use kindness, use your life. Be encouraged. I believe it's John Stott who said, what Christian words cannot do, a Christian life can often do. How then, how then do I share with people in a way where I'm not wasting what is sacred and opening it up to contempt? This is what John Broadus says. Do not be afraid or paralyzed to speak. He says, make the trial, which means have the initial conversation, evaluate, and then continue our labors or leave them aside according to results. This isn't an error that you make just once, okay? Don't, don't feel like, man, I can't share because this person might not be wise. No, share and then gauge their reaction and based on what they do, determine how far you want to go. You know, there are people that you can say, you know what, I struggle with anxiety, but I wouldn't say that the first time you ever talk to somebody. Make sure they're not going to take advantage of that and harm you because if you open yourself up to certain people indiscriminately, they may take every single treasure and prize that you've got and leave you feeling empty. And the person who puts that treasure in you and builds you up and encourages you and gives you your identity is God, not other people. So guard and protect yourself. But understand that you exist for a mission. And so learn how to shake the dust off your feet. We don't make the error of, of regularly feeding our pigs pearls and our dogs holy stuff just once. We, we make it a pattern of our life where we're non-discriminatory and we think, like, I just need to share and share and share and share everything about myself and people come and take advantage of me. Instead, learn how to shake the dust off your feet. Jesus taught this. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. He's like, don't even let the junk from the ground cling to you. I leave it right here. And off I go. And I'm still me. Because that's all on them, whether they receive the truth or not. It's on me to communicate it clearly. Acts 13, 44, sorry, 45, Paul says this to the synagogue that he was preaching. Since you thrust the teaching about eternal life aside and judge yourselves unworthy of it, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And then in verse 51, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. 
we must exercise care. When we share the gospel, we plant the gospel in places where the soil is receptive. And so if this coworker is like, tell me more, if this child is like, tell me more, we tell them more. And if this one is resistant, then we use strategy and wisdom. Jesus said, be wise like a serpent and harmless as a dove. We need to take this as good advice from God. He says, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Some lessons can be learned by listening. And some people will hear this word from Jesus and they will say, if I limit and protect myself and use strategy and share in a wise way that connects with people, then they will hear the good news maybe gradually, maybe quickly, and they will grow. Others won't learn it that way, and they will open the store chest of their souls, and they will throw everything out, and they will be taken advantage of, but hopefully they won't be fooled multiple, multiple times. They will learn. Jesus says, treasure and protect your wisdom Because we're to use strategy in reaching other people. We're to be wise in the way that we reach them. So let us always be morally beautiful. Let us be light and salt. But maybe go a little bit light on the salt with some people. Shine a little more brilliantly to others. Let's close in prayer. Father, you have called us to be wise change agents in the world. You've called us to be parents who dispense wisdom. You've called us to be spouses who share and correct and help others. You have called us to be co-workers who live lives of, of moral purity, who when people see us, they say, tell me more about your secrets. And one of the ways in which we do that is by being wise in the way that we communicate. Discrimination is an ugly word because it's been politicized, but it is a beautiful word when it connects with wisdom. And so we pray that you would teach us how to share, how to restrain our lips. The Bible says even a fool who restrains his lips will be seen as wise. And so maybe silence at times is the beginning of wisdom because we learn about the people we want to share with when we stop communicating with words and communicate by listening. Father, you've given us time. You've given us a people to reach and to influence. I just pray that you would make us wise in the way that we speak. Help us not to be hypocrites who run our mouths all the time and don't listen when we expect others to listen to us. Help us to match our walk and our talk. Help us to speak in ways that make you appear attractive. You are beautiful and glorious beyond description. The Bible calls you, though, it says that you are the God who hides himself. And so you have hidden yourself to be revealed in nature and in this word and by your followers. May we live and speak in such a way that we do not give unnecessary offense. But that other people would say, I want that person around me because they are sharp when it comes to people. So we ask that you would give us the gift of discernment. 
and help us to love with kindness and with grace and to share and to share and to share with wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.